Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. Great to see you all and to be with you. So um, some of you are taking uh, the class on emptiness right now. And um, this meditation is sort of a pointer to aware of awareness. It's not the full meditation. And um, tomorrow at 7 a.m., I will record the full meditation and instruction on that. So Either you can join me tomorrow at seven if you're interested, or it, I'll press record, and then you'll have that full recording because it's it's a little longer and more involved than we could do today. But it's good to see all of you. Nice to see you again. A few of you I haven't seen for a while, and um, I wanted to um, talk today about um, a major Buddhist teaching, right? Major Buddhist teaching. And um, in Buddhist teachings, we stress that the world is made up of three things. Impermanence, right? Three elements, impermanence, which we can understand very well. Um, it's quite obvious in our lives. Suffering or dukkha, another thing we get to understand pretty well. There's dukkha happening all the time from grasping, from clinging, just from being alive. There's always a bit of suffering. And then we say not self, anatta. And that's where we lose a lot of meditators and students of Buddhist philosophy. Um, this one is, this piece is most mysterious and most difficult to understand. And we've talked about it before uh, over the years. And one of the um, critical, most important teachings along with not self is the five aggregates of clinging, it's called, or skandhas in Pali which refers to um, these ways in which the Buddha divided up our uh, perceptual experience of the world, everything we take to be reality. And he called them five heaps, five heaps. Um, the more I study this, the more I'm always thinking, Buddha, what were you thinking? You know, it's so complicated. And why these five heaps or these five lumps of reality? So important for us to contemplate and understand. And yet, um, when I've taught this or I've been a student listening to the talks on the five aggregates of clinging, it can feel very much like, oh, you know, it's an interesting philosophy, but what does it have to do with me? Or what does it have to do with everyday experience? Or how is this 
applicable in my life? Is this like really meaningful? Um, and I always notice, and I don't know about you, um, you can tell me, but every time I get this teaching on the aggregates, part of me gets a little sleepy, like it's a math lesson. You know, I just sort of like a little, like oh, so interesting. But um, for thousands of years, thousands of years, um, the Heart Sutra, which contains the skandhas and the aggregates, talks about the aggregates. If you are in Zen or Chan, this is chanted at every sit all over the world. For thousands of years, we talk about the skandhas, these heaps. Um, and, it, and I'll read a little bit. There are many different um, interpretations. And even here in Long Beach, there are tons of Zen temples and Zen groups just in Long Beach. And there, every day, this is chanted. I happen to love the sound of the Heart Sutra. And I can't get enough of it, but I can't say why exactly. So it goes like this. I'm just going to read a little bit. The Bodhisattva of Compassion when he meditated deeply, saw the emptiness of all five skandhas. He saw the emptiness of these five clusters of consciousness and uh, sundered the bonds that caused his suffering, broke the clinging. Here then, form is no other than emptiness. Emptiness is no other than form. Form is only emptiness. Emptiness only form. Feeling, thought, and choice, consciousness itself are the same as this. All things are by nature void. They are not born or destroyed, nor are they stained or pure, nor do they wax or wane. So in emptiness, no form, no feeling, thought, or choice nor is there consciousness, no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no color, sound, smell, taste, touch, or what the mind takes hold of, not even an act of sensing. And it goes on and on and on. So it's, it's a tough thing to teach and talk about. It's filled with mystery and paradox. It just doesn't make sense. And I always think of Thich Nhat Hanh, during the Vietnam War, they would sit and meditate together in their little monastery um, in the middle of the war. And they would chant this, right? No ear, no eye, no sound, nothing's happening, right? And then they would go out together and they would tend to the villagers who were either injured, hungry, um, their homes were destroyed by bombs, uh, whatever needed tending, they went and did it. So here they're chanting that it's all empty and void and they walk out into a war to serve. So what is that about? Wasn't that real? Wasn't that bomb real? Weren't these people injured? So when we're really looking at this part of Buddhism, we're not saying um, everything is empty and void and not really happening or true. Right. We're not saying that, obviously, Thich Nhat Hanh's not saying that. And and we're not saying that everything we think and see is real. We're living our lives with the tension of some truth, some paradox. 
And this is where I hope you're interested. This is an inquiry. You know, this is where curiosity needs to really come up and meet us. Like, what are they talking about? Right? Why is he chanting that? And then going out and helping someone uh, who's a victim of war. And I know many students that I've sat with over the years, um, teachers um, in training with me, have said, well, you know, this no self just doesn't seem important. It's not real in the world. But it was real to Thich Nhat Hanh, right? So let's see if we can explore together. So see if you can kind of put on your curiosity hat here and allow yourself to let your brain not get it. This is very important. Let your brain just not get it. By the way, our intellectual brains don't get this at all. They get a little bit, you know, it is get a little bit. A lot of this is like um, seeds of something coming, you know, you're planting seeds in the earth, but you can't make the plant um, become a plant. You can plant a seed, but you can't get the plant to, to flower right? You can't get the plant to grow. You can give it water with your interest in your curiosity, your attention, with your meditation practice is very important. Some of this is just really experiential. Um, but eventually, this plant will grow as insight within you, not so much in your conscious control or your intellectual control. It's almost like you just have to let your unconscious grab it and let it grow as you contemplate, this truth will happen for you. It will come to you. I like to say, don't grab these truths. Like don't cling to them. Let them come to you. Let them rise up as insight. And when they do, um, it, it, will be, um, you know, it will be liberating. It's liberating. And that's the funny thing about, um, when we talk about no self or the five aggregates of clinging, so hard to understand and yet so liberating when you do. So hard to grasp and yet so freeing at the same time. So uh, don't worry if it's not fully understood because some part of you will be working on it. So just let it settle. So one of the things we know that we're doing is we're always, a lot of us, we are projecting our conditioning, our past onto the present, right? Where a lot of us are uh, living life from an old encyclopedia inside. It's not fresh. It's not new. It's uh, we're just calling up what we know. And we're not in that fresh direct experience or just that bare attention. There's a lot of novel making going on. There's a lot of story making going on. So one of the benefits of studying the five aggregates is it really helps us see what is just happening in reality, reality, and then whoops, the stories I tell about reality that are not reality and I'm caught in a daydreamy world. Of, and it usually that daydreamy world usually has an I, me, and my. 
As a matter of fact, if you are like me, my brain, which you probably are, and we know from um, neuroscience that the brain very often won't just rest even when you want to, it will um, look for problems because it's threat, it, the brain is kind of looking for a threat to survive. So we'll look for problems and then it will create a you to solve the problem. And very often that you that it creates is unsatisfied. There's dissatisfaction in it or inadequacy, deficiency in you. So sometimes I even notice, and I don't know if this is happening for you, just waking up into consciousness, the brain is already um, listing the problems or the dissatisfactions. You know, it's, it's pulling towards the stress. And then it's telling a story about the stress that has a self in it. Is that pleasant? <laughs> No, it's stressful, right? So you can use this study of the aggregates to kind of pull that apart. So, so let's pull it apart a little bit. And I, so now I feel like I'm going to start teaching math. This is where my brain goes. I, I am not a student of math. Okay, so some of you may be, not me. All right, so the first one is of the five. Um, every single morning, all right, yeah, and and it's not you that's doing that. Let's let's talk about not self. One, you can see not self in that, right? That that tendency of the brain to screen the environment for what's not going right. That's all brains. That's not you. That's a function of evolution and the brain. It's not you. And the suffering is held. It's everybody suffers with this. Unless you're taking a lot of medication, self-medicating, but never mind. So the first one is form, which refers to the physical world. And let's see, would somebody like to write that in the chat for us, form? Um, usually I have Don doing that, but he's uh, not here today. I can do it. Thank you. He's with his family. So the first one is form. Form is all your uh, five senses and the manifestation of the physical world, everything you see from your eyes. So, so and including all your senses. So seeing, hearing, touch, tasting, um, sight, smell, right? That's all in form. So take a moment, look around your room all the color and the shape, the light, the shapes, the smell, somebody's barbecuing back there. I don't know why they're barbecuing. Oh, getting there for lunch. So I'm smelling barbecue. I'm seeing a dead rose on my rose bush. Yeah. Uh, seeing my dog with his paws in the air. That's all form. Your eye consciousness, consciousness is meeting your eye and there's an image. It's happening milliseconds all the time, form. The next one is um, called sensation. So sensation means that uh, when my eye 
see something or smell something or feel something, immediately there's a reaction of, I like this, I want more. I don't like this, I don't want it at all. Or neither, I'm neutral. And this colors, this little step colors the story, the novel that we write. It colors it. Um, so if I open up, um, I'm having breakfast and I'm gonna, I'm making this up now. I'm gonna have um, bagel and cream cheese. Let's just say I open up the cream cheese, right? My eye sees mold, it's moldy. And is that pleasant or unpleasant? Unpleasant, right? That unpleasant moment can set the tone of my day if I'm not aware, if I'm clinging. Oh, I didn't get my cream cheese and bagel. I just bought it. It was really expensive. What are they doing over there at Vons? I wasted my money. I'm going to take it back. I don't have time. You see how a novel can start to be written. Um, the mind will proliferate. And we know when the mind proliferates, very often it's unpleasant. <laughs> Think about it, right? So you have form, then you have sensation, then there is perception. And that's the um, cognition of the sense object. The mind meets the experience, consciousness of the mind, consciousness meets the experience. And it's followed by mental labor, labeling. So I opened up the cream cheese and I saw mold. My mind said mold. And then I went back in my encyclopedia or my Wikipedia and uh, that's spoiled food and tastes rotten and it's disgusting or whatever it is for you, right? So you go back and you name it and that's called perception. Uh, and the next one is mental formations. And that's the one that I find so much more interesting. And that's after I've named it. I, I've got the sense object and I have named it. Then I am going to think about it. I'm going to have feelings. I'm going to have moods. Um, that's my story making. And that's if you're a creative person, you, you like the mental formations. Um, I'm never going to shop at Vons again. Uh, their food is old. <laughs> uh, what I, I hate this breakfast. I don't want a dry bagel. Uh, just this always happens to me. Why does this happen to me? I'm just, I just wanted my coffee and bagel and now I'm just, I got nothing here. You know, it can go on like this forever. Yeah. Uh, so the story we tell about what's happening and are these stories true? Are they accurate? Not always, not always. And let's think about how often the damage is done because we're relying on this mind, this brain that is deciphering reality and may not be deciphering it correctly. I mean, this is where racism, sexism, homophobia, um, you know, all these things that we struggle and fight with it, that are so negative in our society, it's where they come from. I see a person of color 
And I have maybe a negative feeling, a rejecting feeling on the color of their skin. And not I, but you know, this happens in our society every day, which is why we've had so many problems with people of color not feeling safe and rightfully so around police. You know, these five skandhas are operating. Uh, so they have huge implications in the way we behave with each other. All over the world, everywhere, it's, it's common. And then the last one I want to say is um, consciousness. And consciousness is um, the, the ability to know that's arising. Consciousness comes and goes. It's impermanent. It arises as the senses arise. As thoughts arise, as the senses arise, consciousness arises. So as I land on the tissue box in my room, consciousness is arising with my eye consciousness. It's not just, con it's eye consciousness, nose consciousness, hearing consciousness, thinking consciousness, tasting consciousness. Consciousness is arising to know, but what knows? Here we go. Here's where it gets very mysterious, right? What knows? Who knows? Who is knowing? What is knowing? Very often we have taken this I to be a permanent fixed self. So let me ask you, where is the I in your body? Tell me where the I is. Where is that I? Can you locate it? But it feels, we can't, but it feels very real. And we take that I to be solid and consistent. What the Buddha is saying, this I, like everything else, is always changing, arising and passing and taking a different shape or form. But we believe in this I. How many of you, this is a hard question. Okay, I don't even know if this question is going to work. But for those of you, ask yourself, what I, be honest, your I, your I this morning, if you ask your I, that egoic, we could say, or this cluster of a sense of self, how old it is? How old is your I? Does it match your chronological age? Because I and the body can be very different too. Um, there was a study where they asked people to draw their body, how, what the shape and size of their body is, well, how they perceive their body. And most people don't see their body really as it is. I, I'm not going to ask you how old you think you are. What does your eye think? In truth, I will say, tell you that my eye does not think it's the age I am. <laughs> chronologically <laughs> my eye my eye is like 30 years behind the times people you know right and in truth your eye may not even know who you are because we're so caught up in the stories in this fog of story which is normal so in my last couple of minutes, I, I want to say a couple of things about why would I want, why is this interesting? 
you know, why does this, why do we talk about this with, in relation to no self? Very often when the mind gets concentrated and you're sitting, if you're lucky enough to go on retreat and you're lucky enough to have the time where the mind will settle. And if you sit long enough, generally the mind will settle. And sometimes we need just the right conditions. Um, quiet, good food, comfortable, maybe a little yoga. Um, the mind will settle, it will get still. And you can see when this happens, For and many of you I know this has happened to, um, the mind stops telling a story. It stops imagining, it stops defining, it stops naming, it just stops. It stops creating a world. And so that's why people go on retreat sometimes for a month, three months, two weeks, you know, as long as you can, because they can see you can have that felt sense of the mind spinning a tail. And every time you see how the mind spins a tail, you get a little insight, a little freedom. Like, oh, this I that I take myself to be uh, is not very real. I remember once being a little girl walking in the country um, with my grandfather down a country road. And I thought um, that there was a stick on the floor. It's a very classic, um, classic case, right? I thought there was a stick on the floor and I went down to touch it, to lean in to grab the stick and it was a garden snake and it rose up and jumped up. And I was terrified. But in my mind, I saw a stick while well, it was really a snake. So very often our naming, our perception is not in the world, right? And then there was this fear and this anxiety and this terror and, you know, and all this stuff, right? Um, and very often we tell ourselves things. I uh, remember taking one of my kids to a big Ferris wheel, right? And he looked at the how high and tall it was. And fear arose, right? No, that's a scary thing, this Ferris wheel. I won't like it. I won't get on. And his brother finally coaxed him to get on. And he went around and around in the Ferris wheel. And no, that self, he loved it. it this perception that it was dangerous was not accurate, right? Things like this happen all the time. But another story on the back end of this is... Um, I once was um, at a um, yoga retreat and um, it was a vigorous yoga retreat. And so there was a lot of sweat in the room and my yoga mat got all sweaty and like slimy. So I took the yoga mat and I put it outdoors and I left it there. And the class had ended, obviously, and I went to go meditate, you know, just I'm going to sit and meditate before lunch and get quiet. And because maybe the yoga helped, my mind got very concentrated and still. And um, I went outside before lunch um, after an hour or two had gone by, um, just meditating on and off, walking, you know, just practicing and I, my mat was in the sun, 
right? Hopefully drying up all that sweatiness. And I pulled my mat and there was a snake under the mat. Actually a beautiful snake. I'd never seen such a pretty snake. But the point that I'm trying to make is that the mind was still from the meditation, right? The mind was very still at that moment. And so um, the snake, there wasn't even a name. There wasn't a reaction. There wasn't a, I like it, I don't like it, I reject it, this is bad, this is scary, this is anything. It was just, ah, seeing. In that moment, it was just seeing the snake. And there was no other content there, just snake. You know, maybe not even the name snake, just, you know, presence with this thing. And then as I kind of came to and this, I came back and this self was, oh my God, there's a snake under my yoga mat, you know, my yoga mat, right? My yoga mat, there's a snake under my yoga mat. Oh my God, right? So uh, it was a beautiful lesson of insight. Uh into just that clear moment of how much is bare attention and reality and how much we overlay. And what the process of meditation is about. It gives us that space to stop the mind from proliferating. Now, if you have, um, let's see, let me just... If you have pain, for example, which many of us do, we're in physical pain, you, you can see these um, heaps or these skandhas at work because very often with pain, physical pain, and, and I'm talking not you know chronic, difficult physical pain that's hard to bear, but mild to moderate pain, if, you're with it, the pain in meditation or in life, and it's just bare attention, you really notice um, the quality of the pain. It's coming and going. Is it sharp? Is it dull? Is it tingling? Is it achy? Is it tight? Is it, you know, is it soft? It, it, if you really are with this pain in meditation, um, you can see it's impermanence and you can feel the quality and the sensation. But very often when we have pain, we have a story with the pain. Oh my gosh, I'm not gonna be able to walk. What if this gets worse? What if I get hooked on medication? What if I can't sleep? Um, what if I'm handicapped? What, you know, I don't, we reject it, we push it away. And then we make the pain worse than it is. And we have anxiety and fear around the pain or depression. So you could see these five heaps coming in, if you play with it, I like it, I don't like it, and what I think. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.